Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. My name is Jennifer, and it's the second week of Advent. I'm sharing a reflection I wrote about peace. On the edge, I waver. I drink a cup of coffee, innocent enough or so I thought, but you see for me, caffeine is a trap, a trigger for something more sinister. My palms are sweaty, my ears reaching a high-pitched squeal as the blood rushes from the organ that is trying to march out of my chest. A hundred miles an hour, my mind tries to make sense of the chemical signals, but it's too late. Tipping the scale, I grasp at nothing with all my might. My white knuckles, one of the only clues to my inner deafening crash. Dying. I am dying. But of course, as the minutes pass, tick, 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 I don't die. Tick, 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 I'm still alive. Tick, 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 rational thought comes back. Oh yeah, this is just an anxiety attack. In college, anxiety introduced itself in this new expression, but over time I learned its tricks, and I know how far I can walk up to the edge before I find myself on its roller coaster. But as a given rule, I always live with a low level of anxiety, just lounging around in my limbic system. But Jennifer, it's Christmas time, time to put down your anxiety, time for peace. Christmas hearkens the angels to sing, to go tell it on a mountain and to fall on your knees. We stand with our arms raised and singing at the top of our lungs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as we sit in silent reverence in awe of Jesus, admitting our failures or longings, but peace, Joy, I recognize. Anger, I feel it rise. Sadness is my companion. Anxiety, my old college friend, pays a visit now and again. But peace, elusive as ever, never comes to the table of my heart. Like a middle school crush, I rush at peace while peace seems to run away from this awkward, acne-scarred, frizzy-haired girl. I've chased peace to Mauna Kea Mountain, seated above the clouds. I've chased peace to Oregon, standing behind a roaring falls. I've chased peace to Uganda, holding a child's hand. I've chased peace to Indiana, walking with my grandma by a river. And for a few fleeting flashes, there it was, peace. But excuse my cognitive dissonance, peace shouldn't have to be a mountaintop experience. Pardon me while I belch my doubt at the table. What is peace? Is peace Israeli soldiers shooting into a Palestinian refugee camp in Bethlehem 
Peace, another unarmed black man shot by a white police officer. Peace, the continual oppression of Native Americans for opportunity to rape the land. Peace, the fragments of dissension I saw left over from genocide in Rwanda. Peace, that truck driver that just honked at me. Peace, that parent that just yelled at me for giving their baby a grade they deserved. Peace, my family members battle with PTSD from sexual abuse. Peace, my friends battle with PTSD from sexual abuse. Peace, seeing family members die. Peace, knowing I have the breast cancer gene. Peace, wondering why my arms are not yet filled with a baby sleeping in heavenly peace. Peace, God, why have you forsaken us? God, I thought that you cared. And like 2,000 years ago, a call is shouting within the depths of my soul, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God, I see now I was mistaken. We are not forsaken for yours is a kingdom that is now and not yet advent does offer me a baby to fill my arms and my heart with peace. His name is Jesus. I don't have to face the potential for breast cancer alone. His name is Jesus. My family members who have passed find themselves in the arms of love. His name is Jesus. My friend and my family member have an anchor. His name is Jesus. That student's parent needs some grace. His name is Jesus. That truck driver needs the source of all love. His name is Jesus. They're a Wandan, Hutu, and Tutsi can join hands and find healing. His name is Jesus. Corporations can find an alternative fuel. His name is Jesus. Black and white can reconcile with the help of a brown man. His name is Jesus. Israelis can find some common ground with Palestinians because 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in that place in Bethlehem to show another way. His name is Jesus. Little by little, I am learning that peace is less about a feeling and more about choosing. It's about choosing the way of Christ. So today we light the second Advent candle and take comfort in its flame, expectant, waiting, and pregnant with peace. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church and welcome to the second Sunday of Advent. So last week we began by talking about hope. This week we're talking about peace, next week joy, and then finally on Christmas Eve we're gonna be talking about love. And one of the things that I mentioned about Advent that uh, I'm just so enamored with is this idea that as Christians we look back at the first coming of Christ to recognize the character of God and what he looks like, what he sounds like, and that gives us courage to kind of look to the future for his second coming. 
And so we're kind of, you know, in this, in this creative tension, we're in this squeeze of these two dramatic events in history, and that's kind of uh, the platform upon which we examine these very specific ideas of what it meant uh, for Jesus uh, to come as the Messiah, as God's rescue plan, not just for humanity, but for uh, the entire world. And so I want to begin with a parable that I wrote a little while ago. This is not in the Bible, so you don't have to root around looking for it. I'm not even saying it's necessarily like the highest form of truth, but I think it's pretty good, okay? So picture this. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's walking around Jerusalem uh, with his disciples. He's gathering crowds, and it, there's just there's a tension in the air. It feels so thick. Everyone kind of knows something's going to happen. There's going to be some sort of a confrontation. This isn't like the other times that Jesus and his disciples have entered into Jerusalem for the standard festivals. And as you know, one of Jesus' disciples was Judas Iscariot. And Judas belonged to a fringe political group known as Zealots. And the Zealots believed that God was going to send his, the Messiah, who was going to be this military leader, who was going to lead a revolution against the Roman Empire, who was going to take up a sword against Caesar's men, overthrow the oppressors, and reestablish Israel as its own independent state. And so as they're walking down the road in Jerusalem, Judas is also feeling this tension. He knows something is about to happen. He knows something needs to happen. The time is right. And he's been following Jesus for three years, watching and listening and observing and asking questions but he still struggles with, it just doesn't quite seem like Jesus is fitting his expectations of who the Messiah is actually supposed to be. And so he begins to prod Jesus. He said, Lord, now is the time for the revolution. No more talk. No more miracles. Now's the time. If we're really serious, this has got to be the moment that we confront the empire. And Jesus says to Judas, Judas, have you not been listening to what I've been saying for three years? Have you not watched what this, this mystery of the kingdom of God really looks like? And Judas says, Lord, I know, and you talk so much about peace, and you talk so much about turning the other cheek, and you talk so much about being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, and those are nice ideals, but when the rubber hits the road, which isn't a phrase that they would have used in the first century, bear with me, but when it really push comes to shove, we have to take up the sword. The, your ideals of peace, they're nice, but they're not practical, and it's come to this time where we need to step into that last resort. And Jesus says to Judas, have you not been listening to everything I've been saying when I told you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, when I've told you that those who live by the sword will die by the sword? And, and Judas keeps pushing back, yes, Lord, I know that's what you said. I know that's how you're trying to frame this thing, but it's, it's time for us to be realistic. And they go back and forth and back and forth, and Jesus gets so frustrated that he just winds back and just socks Judas right in the jaw, knocks him out flat, and walks away. And the question of this story is who was right? Whose perspective on peace, whose perspective was justified? Because perhaps it's both. Maybe it's Judas that gets up and feels like, you know what, violence did solve something. I lost that argument. But what it does is it keeps Judas in that cycle of violence and this illusion that we have of human beings that if we can just be bigger and stronger and more capable than our opponents, then maybe someday we will achieve peace. 
But what I'm inviting all of you to recognize tonight is perhaps the version of peace that we see embodied in Christ as the Messiah is so dramatically different from our assumptions of peace that we need to throw out everything we know and re-engage with the Jesus that we find in the Christmas story. And so let's pray together. I'll pray for you and you pray for me and we'll see what the Lord has in store. Heavenly Father, uh, you are already here and you are already moving. Lord, we praise you so much for the gifts that you have given us. Lord, sometimes for me, I know that I testify to your, your truth more because uh, of faith than because I, I feel it or I see it. But today's not one of those days. Today's one of those days where there's just so many things conspiring in this room together um, that it feels thick with your presence. And, and we celebrate that and we worship that, Lord. Father, you have so much that you want to do here, and we want to continue to have this high expectation that you are going to show up time and again for your people, that you're going to be whispering in the ears of your children, that you want to come and you want to bring us freedom, that you want to break down some of the small ideas that we've had about peace and how the world is supposed to work, where you want to break down some of the places where we have disbelieved the kingdom, where we cannot fully accept this radical kingdom message of Jesus because it's not practical. And you want to instill in us a new vision of what it really looks like for us to embody the peace of Jesus. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Peace is the journey for all believers. And peace is the destination for the whole world. You see, a lot of times when we talk about peace, we talk about something down the road that we're going to try to achieve at some day. Like that's kind of the goal. And by whatever means, we need to get there. But what I want to actually posit tonight is not only is peace our destination, but it's also the way in which we walk the path. So last week, we looked at this idea of hope, and we said, we need God to give us a vision of hope. We need God to give us a vision of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth, when God has finished his rescue project, when he's gathered it all up and he's restored all things. And I believe what we call that future vision, that hopeful vision, we call that peace, because it's about togetherness. You know, a lot of times we allocate peace just to being an absence of war, an absence of conflict. But I believe that God's vision for peace is the the complete togetherness, intimacy with him. And so as we're going through this, I want you to be thinking of peace on multiple layers. I want you to be thinking about it personally in your relationships with your friends, your family, and so on. But I also want you to think about it globally. Because if the character of God is consistent, then what God has to say about peace must be true for our entire species as much as it is true for our individual relationships. So as we do so often, I want us to begin by looking at an Old Testimony, Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy uh, from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah writes this beautiful poem. He says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Galilee is kind of like the Oklahoma of the Middle East. It's there, and you're kind of aware of it, but nothing really happens there. You want action, you go to Jerusalem. You want to be out in the middle of nowhere, you want to be in the boondocks, you go to Galilee, okay? So already this prophecy seems a little strange. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah's prophecy is pointing to this higher vision for humanity. It recognizes the status quo that up until that point, the way that human beings had done peace was very much the way that human beings had done conquering. You come to the fight with a larger stick. And that's just the way of the world. But the prophecy of Isaiah, this vision he gives for the Messiah coming to earth is to say, the old ways don't hold up anymore. There's going to be a new way that God is going to choose to enact. But I think this is perhaps the most powerful thing that we can draw from this prophecy uh, for our purposes today. There is a reason God gave us a baby and not a warrior for a Messiah. That is the Christmas message. There is a reason God gave us a baby and not a warrior for a Messiah. You see, when you and I, when we look at the mess and the chaos around us in our personal lives, on a global platform, when we look at all of these things, the conclusions that we come up with is someone needs to stand up who is strong and capable. Whenever we feel threatened in our personal lives or in our tribe, in our club, whatever it is, we need to prove how right we are, that the way that we see the world is the right way, and everybody else needs to get in line before we steamroll right over them. But I think it's fascinating that God's rescue plan for the world starts not with a warrior king who's going to come in and show how right his people are, the kind of political revolutionary leader that Judas was looking for, but God begins his rescue project with a baby. For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. And I was racking my brain this week thinking, why on earth is it that God would have this prophecy for this Messiah, this king, this anointed one, but start with a baby? What is it that babies do to us when they're in our presence? If we have any sense of feeling whatsoever. Some of you have killed that off long ago, and babies are just a threat, and that's okay. We'll work on that. But what is it about, there's something about babies, that, that pure presence of innocence, and vulnerability, and it changes the atmosphere of the room, doesn't it? We're kind of going about our lives, and we think that we, we understand things, we can control them and perceive them, and so on and so forth, and all of a sudden we encounter a baby, and something within us shifts. You realize we're actually biologically engineered to respond to cute. Did you know that? There's something within us. This is why uh, males of our species don't eat our own young, because we respond to cute. It's built into our genes. There's something about a baby that's so open and exposed and vulnerable, and I think one of the big things is because of this. You know, when we grow up, we are, exist under this illusion that if I can just control everything, if I can perceive it, and if I can understand how the world works, and then I can respond according to that plan, then in some way I can fix things. 
or I can protect myself, or whatever it is. But it's very much this lie that it's about strength, and it's about competence, and it's about ability, and that's how you're going to survive. But babies exist on an entirely different platform. Babies don't know anything. Babies are incapable. They're incompetent. And I say that in the sweetest manner possible. It's because babies exist in an entirely different way than you and I do. Because babies, by default, abide in a deep trust that they don't have to know everything. In fact, they can't. But all they can do is release themselves into their mother's arms and trust that that is enough. You and I, we like to analyze the world so that we can control it. But all babies can do is abide in a deep trust. And perhaps this is why God's rescue plan begins not with a warrior king, but a baby. In that beautiful poem uh, that Jennifer wrote and shared with us, uh, she read a portion of Luke 2, and I want us to revisit that. Luke 2, chapter 11. Again, another indicator that perhaps God's plan for the world is a little different than you and I would have written it. When he sends his angels, his messengers, to, to rally everybody to make them aware that this baby has been born, he doesn't go to kings and sources of power, but he goes to these shepherds, these outcasts, these people that are they're overlooked. They're not good enough for normal society. And God says, these are the kind of people that I want to witness to the birth of my son. And so the angels are speaking uh, to the the. Uh, the the shepherds, and he says this, today in the town of David, a son has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, the rescue project has taken on a dramatically different tone than what you and I would have assumed. But I think this is the most amazing thing about this declaration. It does not say today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Someday he will be the Messiah. Someday Jesus is gonna grow up and he's gonna go to the right schools and he's gonna get the right education. He's gonna read the right books and he's gonna get the right degree and he's gonna get a really great PR firm behind him. And they're going, to, they're going to shape his message so beautifully so when he gets out there, he's just going to win ways. And then he's got a super PAC that's behind him, and so there's all of this corporate money being loaded into that, and that's going to give him a major boost. And then he's going to be the Messiah, and then he's going to win the election, and then he's going to save the whole world. That's not what this says. Praise be to the Lamb. It says, he is the Messiah. The moment that baby was born, he's the king. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He is exactly who God wanted him to be. Because Jesus didn't have to fall into our illusory systems of how one becomes powerful, of how one becomes in a position of control. That baby, that helpless, exposed, vulnerable, lower class child was the savior of the universe even in that moment. He was, as Isaiah speaks of, the prince of peace. But you see, that phrase, prince of peace, was already claimed by somebody else in the first century. There was somebody who was already titled the prince of peace and the Lord of lords, the son of God. And his name was not Jesus, his name was Caesar. You see, the Roman Empire was the most powerful uh, empire that had ever been known up to that point in history. 
And all of these phrases that the gospel writers chose to ascribe to Jesus were previously claimed by Caesar himself, that he's the son of God, that he's the Lord of Lords, that he's the Prince of Peace. And and the emperor, and by extension his empire, believed in a very different form of peace, that Rome was all about bringing peace through strength, is what they so creatively called it, or Pax Romana. And Pax Romana operated like this. We're going to come into your place, and all of you are doing it wrong, so we're going to show you how to do it right. And if you don't, you get the sword. And so we're going to fix the world by conquering all of it and imposing our culture, our sense of right and wrong, our military, our money, our government over you. And once we have control of the whole world, then we're going to bring peace. You see, that empirical notion of Pax Romana, of peace through strength, it didn't die with the Roman Empire in 456. It has continued to live on in different empires throughout the ages. But they all have this same marker, that what empires see is they say, those people over there, they are evil. And so we're going to pour out their blood so that we can have peace. The empirical notion of peace is threatened by other people. The empirical notion of peace says we have to prove how right we are. We have to prove that God is on our side through strength, and then we can save the world by fixing it. But along comes this baby, this child, this real son of God, this true prince of peace, and he speaks a very different message to that that is from the empire. That the message of Jesus is those people over there, they are loved and I will pour out my blood so that they can know peace. And the early church, the first several centuries of the church were uniform in this idea of what we call pacifism. And I think it's a tragedy that in the English language, the word passive and pacifist sound the same because they have very little to do with one another. Pacifism is about not doing anything. Pacifism is about a posture of nonviolence an aggressive posture of nonviolence, if you can kind of bear with the oxymoron. And the early church was completely uniform in this, that one of the things they talked about more than anything else was that we were called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecuted us, because it's only then that we will be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Indeed, one of the early uh, church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. You realize that almost all of Jesus' disciples were martyred for their beliefs. In the first several centuries, hundreds of Christians were persecuted and murdered, not just by the Roman Empire, but by others. But it was their refusal to take up the sword. It was their refusal to fight back that became the greatest testimony that God was giving such a radically new vision of peace that people flocked to the church until the early 300s when Emperor Constantine very brilliantly made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. And now everybody's Christian by default. And not only that, the empire was able to rebrand Christianity, make it a little bit more empire-friendly, cut out all those pieces that are very inconvenient when you're trying to conquer people about loving your enemies and about dividing walls of hostility coming down. And it has taken us 1,700 years to sip that poison back out of the wound. Because for so long, Within Christianity, we've believed essentially the same thing as the empire. God is on our side. We're justified in how we believe. We're justified in the way that we see the world. 
And if people don't want to get on board, then we're going to go out and conquer them and show them that our way is the right way. But I think that we are in a cultural revolution in our own country today because we no longer have the dominant voice in the culture around us. That we have to begin to rethink not only the ways in which we have spoken the gospel to those around us, but what exactly is that gospel. And there are brothers and sisters around the country and around the world that are coming back to the message of Jesus and recognizing the deep and radical call to peace that stands in the very, in this very center of it. One of my absolute heroes, Brian Zond, who's a brilliant preacher of today, said Jesus never went to war to prove he was right. Jesus never went to war to prove he was right. He never struck out another person to prove his point, except in the parable that I wrote. Again, you will not find that in the Bible. But the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus upends our war-mongering solutions to achieving peace and shows us that there's this entirely new and radical way, and yes, it will cost us everything. But our call as Christians, as little Christs, is that we pass on the peace that we have received through Jesus. Like I said, this is a dominant message in the early church. They were uniform in how they saw this, that not only is it about the fact that we have received peace from God through Christ, but it does something to us. It changes us from the inside, and then it radiates out from us in our words and in our actions. And Paul speaks about this very specifically in Ephesians chapter 2. One of the dominant problems in these, a lot of these early churches was the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, that specifically the Jews didn't know how or if at all they were supposed to, to bring in Gentiles to God's family. Are they supposed to follow all the rules? Are they supposed to get circumcised? Are they supposed to you know, kind of do it this way and that way? Like, what, where, where are the lines in the thing? And it caused a lot of strife and a lot of tension. Have you ever been in a, you know, in, in a situation where you've got both sides of your family are there and you don't know what to do? and you're like a helpless babe stuck in the middle of the thing. I think my parents' parents only ever met at their wedding. <laughs> and maybe it's just as well, I don't know. Some one side of that family is crazy and the other one is slightly less crazy. But Paul is writing, as he does so often, about trying to bring reconciliation and peace. Peace is a dominant theme in Paul's writing. And so in Ephesians, he's talking specifically about reconciling the Jew and the Gentile, and he says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, speaking to the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached, preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And so what Paul is telling the Jews and the Gentiles alike in those very early infant churches is that because of the work of Jesus, there are two pieces offered to us. Number one, we have peace with God. We have reconciliation of our relationship with God. And it's no longer the exclusive uh, place of the Jews to have that connection, but now it's available to all of us. But the second piece that is offered through Christ is that we're brought together into one new family, 
And I love that line, the, the dividing walls of hostility. What he's saying is your, your tribalistic notions of who's in and who's out and who's valuable and who's not valuable, those are no longer valuable or valid in, this, in the place of what Christ has accomplished for us. And I think the powerful thing that we recognize here is that peace moves us toward greater intimacy. It moves us, peace is not just, like I said, that absence of war and conflict, but it's a move towards greater intimacy, whether it's with God himself or whether it's with one another. And I think that's the invitation to the peace of Christ. I love counterfeit peace. Many of you have experienced counterfeit peace for me, and it's like this. You're telling me what you believe, and I'm doing this. And then we walk away, and you think that I agree with you, and I don't. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. I've got opinions on everything, but I'm never going to say anything to you because I love counterfeit peace. It's my bread and butter. It's my motivator. More than anything, I want peace in the world. But I've learned all of these little techniques on how to just avoid conflict, on how to avoid going to war, how, learning how to avoid rocking the boat or making things difficult for myself so I can continue to maintain this just kind of not conflict, counterfeit peace. But I realize more and more, the more that the Lord is working in me, that there's, there's, that'll only ever take me so far because I'm never experiencing true peace. The thing that I really want most in this world, I'm not really experiencing it because I'm settling for something that is less. And so Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection bring down these unhealthy barriers that mask our fears that we're gonna be taken advantage of, that maybe we're not as right as we thought, it exposes our prejudices. It exposes our disdain for other people. It exposes our tribalistic notions. Jesus brings all of these things crumbling to the ground so that we can actually engage and pursue genuine peace, genuine intimacy with one another. As he says elsewhere, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for we are all one under Christ Jesus. And so we begin to wonder, why do we erect these dividing walls of hostility in the first place? What is it that animates us, that, that tells us that that person is different from me or they are less valuable or, or they're a threat to my person, whatever it might be? I think that in some ways, Paul answers this later on in the letter in Ephesians 6. He says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Can I get a good old-fashioned Pentecostal amen? Amen. This is a powerful conclusion to the warring mentality that we find in Scripture. I think that up until Christ Jesus revealed what genuine peace looked like, we looked at other people and we said, those people are evil. Those people are bad. Those people need to be punished. Those people are less than me. Those people need to be sorted out and controlled so that we can bring peace. But one of the, the incredible revelations that we have through Christ is that this other person is not actually my enemy. This other person, and some of you right now are thinking about family members and friends, and that's okay. 
That's where we're headed. To go, oh my goodness, because of what Christ has done, because what if the life of Christ is death and his resurrection, I actually see it was never about this person being the problem in the first place. What Paul is telling us is that the root of our tribalism, the root of our warmongering mentality actually belongs to what I call the unholy trinity, the flesh and the enemy and the world. These things that conspire against us and they influence us in all of these ways to believe these earthly lies that we are separate, that we are better than, that we are worse than. The flesh that beats us up from the inside and keeps us trapped in a certain kind of legalism or in personal sin. The enemy, Satan, and his minions that are speaking lies over us constantly, trying to influence us in our decisions. And the world, the broken systems that mankind has come up with of how we're supposed to order ourselves, how we're supposed to fix the human problem. And these three things conspire against the kingdom of God. What Paul is telling us that Christ does in us as he's bringing us peace is he opens our eyes to be able to see the heavenly realities, to see behind the curtain, to realize this person is not actually my enemy. And then comes the radical notion that Jesus says of love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and then you will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect because you will see as your heavenly father sees. Can you have the courage to see with a greater compassion once you know who your enemy really is. And so I wanna conclude with just three things that I have found so helpful in pursuing not just the destination of peace, but its path. And again, I think that because the character of God is consistent, these things are true when it comes to our personal places of brokenness, but also when it comes to global implications. And the first is this. Let go of dividing walls of hostility to be reconciled. We have to start, posture ourselves in the place to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to us that maybe we don't have an accurate view of humanity. That maybe we're hiding behind the fact that we think that we're right and that we see everything the way it's supposed to be. And we have to have the courage to come before the Lord, to open ourselves before the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, show me where my dividing walls of hostility are. Show me my tribalistic mentality. Show me where I've hated other people because I have believed that I'm right. But show me on perhaps a deeper level where I'm scared. I'm afraid that if I don't understand it all, I'm gonna lose control. I'm afraid other people are going to take advantage of me or they're gonna hurt me. Show me where I have erected those dividing walls of hostility so they can be brought down by the peace of Christ and I can actually pursue reconciliation. Sometimes it's a fear of being compromised, but sometimes it's a feeling of superiority or entitlement because God is on our side and we're going to get what we deserve. Can you let that go? The second thing is this. Cultivate divine imagination to see what the heavenly path of peace looks like in your broken relationships. As we spoke about last week, with hope, we can't do hope on our own. We generally end up in a place of hopelessness. We need God to give us the vision for the reconciliation of all things. We need that vision to speak back into the present moment to give us true hope, to lead us forward in His way, establishing the kingdom as we go. And it's the same thing with peace. We cannot come up with peaceful solutions to conflicts by our own merit. We need the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
we need him to open up our eyes. We need him to help us to look to the horizon, to cultivate that divine imagination, to see things the way that he does, to recognize that the people in our lives that we've written off or that we've hated or we've, we've lashed out against, they're not actually the enemy. They're another child of God waiting to be loved, waiting to be reconciled to him, waiting to be invited into deeper intimacy. But this means that we have to disconnect from these lesser human solutions that are short-term fixes. Because guess what? Violence feels good. It feels good to win an argument. It feels good to punch somebody in the jaw. It feels good to literally rally the troops and go off to a foreign land and to fight the savages. It feels good because it reinforces that we're right. And it's a short-term fix but it just keeps us in these cycles of violence. And we've been doing it our entire existence. And it hasn't worked yet. You realize our country has been in non-conflict in three years of its entire history. When is it gonna stop? It's not working. When are we gonna get the message? We need to die to those lesser solutions that don't actually reveal heaven. Because if we are treating people in certain ways that don't reveal heaven, what is the actual point? What is the point? Because that is what we're called to. There's nothing more important in your life than in thought, word, and deed that you reveal heaven. And finally, have courage to choose peace in the face of violence so we can break the cycle. As I said, oftentimes, the way of nonviolence is portrayed as cowardly. It's cowardly not to stand up and to fight. I believe violence is the cowardly way out. I believe it's easier to pick up the gun, to pick up the sword, to make a fist. I think the courage is to choose to be faithful, to be the kind of people that Jesus has called us to, especially in the face of overwhelming violence. And guess what? It cost Jesus his life. And guess what? It's cost a lot of your brothers and sisters their lives. But the testimony that there's a new vision for what humanity can look like, is that not worth your life each and every day? Do we actually believe there is no greater love than he or she that would lay down their life for a brother or a sister? Choosing the way of peace, the way of Jesus, means being exposed and vulnerable, capable of being hurt. But maybe in choosing peace, we begin to re reveal the Messiah, not unlike a poor Middle Eastern baby lying in a manger in a hometown that's not his own. That's what this Advent season is about. It's about coming back to the story of being reminded of what it looked like when God chose to act the first time. So we can have the courage, the radical vision to look forward to his second coming and allow that to guide us through a world in beautiful, impractical, visionary ways. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. And we're going to pray together. I believe prayer sets the stage for us to cultivate this divine imagination that speaks against these lies, that says peace just isn't practical, that says that's cowardly. And we're gonna pray over several uh, arenas 
uh, of life where there is chaos and brokenness and evil. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to leave a little space, and whatever the Lord gives you to pray, I want you to pray that. We're going to wrap up each moment. I'm going to say, Lord, in your mercy, and you're going to say, grant us peace. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us the divine imagination to see the journey of peace before us. Teach us to walk the earth as an expression of your peace. Show us how to divorce ourselves from warmongering ways and firmly pledge allegiance to our Prince of Peace. Firstly, for the relationship between creator and creation, that we would be united in your perfect love. Lord, in your mercy, for conflicts in our human family, in North Korea, Israel and Palestine, Syria, Sudan and the South Sudan, Congo and elsewhere, raise up the peacemakers who can speak truth to power. Lord, in your mercy, for unrest within our own country, for the dividing walls of hostility between races, economic brackets, political parties, and religious tribes. Lord, in your mercy, for our earthly families, parents and grandparents, spouses, siblings, children, aunts and uncles, cousins. May history be healed so we can be a reflection of your heavenly family. Lord, in your mercy, for our church community, that there would be an end to hostile competition and comparison, jealousy and envy, distrust and dismissal, that we might offer peace to one another every day. Lord, in your mercy, and finally, within ourselves, mind, heart, body, and soul, that we may be whole again as you intended. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for the peace that passes all understanding that we have in Jesus. And Lord, it may pass all understanding, but we wanna do our best. We don't wanna settle for counterfeit peace. We don't wanna settle for just avoiding conflict, avoiding the world, avoiding different people, avoiding ourselves, avoiding our loved ones. We want true peace that leads us into greater intimacy. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to alight on us anew in this moment. Give us visions of peace 
Speak to us. Speak to those places, those dividing walls of hostility in the strong name of Jesus. Command them to come down so that we're no longer separated from others. We're no longer separated from ourselves. And most importantly, we're no longer separated from you. Lord, as we worship, we give you permission to move in us and through us however you see fit. We pray all of this in the strong and the blessed and the exposed and the vulnerable and the peaceful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.